All right, Tim, welcome back to the Appetite for Construction podcast. Tim, how you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to heading to Builder Show this week. I'm looking forward to Builder Show and enjoying a couple of days at the first trade show of the year before we hit HR in two weeks. That's right. Trade show circuits uh, upon us, and uh, we're super excited about that, right, Tim? We are. I, as we joked, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked in our podcast about being healthy to start the year. And if there's one thing that uh, helps with the uh, Fitbit is getting all the steps in at trade shows. Yeah. Or I could rent one of those little carts and just drive around. So that might be what I'm resorting to. But um, Well, I, I'm curious, John, as a we've been going to trade shows in this industry, me since the end of the 90s. You since probably 2004, 2003, 2004 in that. So yeah. you're about five years. I've got about five years on you, but we've been to a lot of trade shows. Um, what's your favorite part of trade shows? Uh, you know, I guess what we learned from COVID in 2020 is the not being around people. I like the connection, the networking, just being around people and and uh, maybe sharing a drink afterward and stuff like that. Just, yeah, the whole connect connectivity of it all i think that's pretty spot on with me I, I i love seeing new products um i think it's the innovation that we see yearly especially what we've seen over the last five to six years uh electrification of uh industry and where it's going i'm uh, i'm looking forward to seeing a bunch of products at trade shows this year so yeah i don't know if that's a segue into our com- comments well, today but i i uh i had a conversation with um our friends at, at Bradford White actually this morning, and we were talking about uh, regulations and the regulatory environment, and it's such a great topic. They love talking about it because it changes <laughs> like changes on a dime almost like every day. And uh, we're excited to have on uh, the podcast today um, Dana Fisher. He's the regulatory strategy director at Mitsubishi Electric. So let's uh, let's get after it, Tim. Let's do it. Fisher, how you doing? Thanks for joining hey, us. Hey, John. Hi, Tim. Really great to be on board. Uh, really excited to be here today. Thanks for uh, sticking around. I think that was the longest intro we've ever done with a guest. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, I mean, like you guys are talking about trade shows. I've been to a lot of trade shows. I think I started going to HVAC and solar and trade shows back around that same, same time period. And I got to agree with you, man, going and like seeing all the new innovation every year. It's like being yeah. a kid in a candy store. Yeah, it sure it really is. Well, real quick question before we get too deep into the woods and into the weeds with this stuff. Your title is regulatory strategy director. Can you like peel back the end a little bit and tell us exactly what you do and how your efforts kind of trickle down to contractors and consumers? Yeah, that's it is it is a mouthful there. Um, you know, there's there's so many different um groups of people that support the HVAC industry and, and, uh, work as all, you know, as part of the machine. And one part of it is this whole realm of regulatory work. And it, it 
you know, just about every major manufacturer has folks that are monitoring uh, the regulatory agencies, like, you know, and uh, whether you're talking about DOE's actions or EPA or um, being on committees with ASHRAE and uh, AHRI, um, seeing what's going on with CEE. So, like, just watching everything that's going on around the country in these different venues that have something to do with HVAC um, in, and not only monitoring it so that we can inform the people that use our products every day, but also so that we can kind of like interject and, and have some uh, input on, on what ends up in these rules that impacts everybody. So, I, you know, and a lot of it is three, four, five, six years out. So it's really far reaching into the future. Um, and then at the same time, keeping an eye on the timelines that are coming right up now uh, to make sure that, you know, our products are ready for it and that we've got the training materials all geared up and ready to go for all the contractors so that it's not totally overwhelming uh, to understand the kind of changes that are that are going on in the marketplace right now. So it takes a village. Yeah. To piggyback on that real quick. You mentioned working with some of the different associations. How closely do you work with them? Are you guys pretty dependent on each other or do you work a lot independently and then try to work together at the end? I mean, I'm curious that connection. How do you work with them? Yeah. You know, it's uh there's um, it's a pretty, pretty tight community actually of, of the people from all the different manufacturers. I mean, obviously we're all kind of interested in our own, you know, objectives, but I mean, like everybody does work together to kind of, you know, carry this, um, this endeavor of, of making, uh, helping to make better choices for new technologies coming down the road. So there's a lot of the collaboration happens in committee meetings. That's really a substantial portion of it. Um, but there are a lot of times where, you know, you might have a question that is kind of like pertinent to your own products. And so you really have to reach out to, um, the different agencies directly to, to just make sure you're understanding the interpretation right so you can communicate that through production planning. So it's, but it, you know, it's, and, and coordinating that effort with everybody in your department that's watching all these different things happening because it's, it's more than just a couple of people can do. From the people looking from the outside, I always get this view that uh, there are regulations just for the sake of regulations. Let's just go through the motions. And it seems like there's more and more. And then there are regulations that are for the betterment, the betterment of society and for the you know sustainability of the planet. And this may be a dumb question, but are you for more regulations? Are you how do you how do you balance that? Yeah, I I, I mean, like, let me tell you, going through some of these conversations, it, it can be uh, it's it's a challenge to to really keep focused because the the level of technical discussion gets very high very quick, um, but. You know, like, for example, you know, some of the regulations that are being talked about right now and and are kind of like getting in the approval stage have to do with the next phases of refrigerants that are coming down the road in Mm -hmm. 2025 and 2026. And, you know, these refrigerants that are coming on board have, you know, lower global warming potential, um, but they also come with a low level of flammability. And so, you know, a lot of the conversation in these committees and, uh, you know, at the different levels are to try and make sure that we're putting, um, you know, regulations in place, um, guidance around, you know, appropriate application and what the equipment has to be able to do and sense and how it senses and how quickly it senses um, so that we can ensure safety. Um, 
and and do it in a way that can be accomplished by the contractors in the field and also by industry. So, and and it's like that's just a that's just one example. There's yeah. a, there's a ton of them, um, but it it really it's not so much like regulation to try and um, you know make it impossible to do these things, even mm-hmm. if it seems daunting. It's more to ensure um, you know the end user's safety. I got gotcha. you. So the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, IRA, the is it is it IRA or IRA? <laughs> yeah, even... yeah. No, if you're in Washington, they call it IRA, but uh, everywhere okay. else, I think they call it IRA for sure. Because you know what they say about IRA? She's a no. Uh, it's it's a new federal <laughs> law and uh, offers unprecedented opportunities to potential to potentially save money on qualified heat pumps and home energy improvement projects with tax credits and rebates. Can you kind of share that, uh, you know, that 10,000 foot view of, uh, of Miss Ira? Yeah. The, um, the, so the, the, the bill passed, we, I mean, like it, it was slated to be, uh, go through Congress, you know, a little over a year ago and then it didn't happen and nobody thought it was going to happen. And then it kind of popped up out of the weeds and, and occurred this past fall and kind of surprised everybody. So it's been a little bit of a mad scramble to get our heads wrapped around it and, and make sure we're in compliance with the different criteria throughout it. But in, in, in essence, for, for those of us in the HVAC industry, there's really only a couple of ways that it impacts us. There's a couple of parts of it. Um, and some of them are rebates that go through state energy programs. So the funds have to flow, you know, that have been allocated some couple of billion dollars uh, flow through the different state energy offices all around the country. And then they have to stand up rebate programs that would go to consumers through contractors for installation of, of the various technologies that are improved, including heat pumps. Um, and that's going to take some time. And then there are uh, tax credits and there are, there are tax credits on, um, you know, high performance, new construction. There are there are tax credits on energy efficiency improvements. Um, and that's really kind of like the top category nexus that we focus on um, because the, the 25C income tax credits that have, uh, you know, for the last several years capped out at $500 lifetime, they've been changed to up to 30, well, frankly, all in, it's up to $3,200 per year for the 10-year period that the tax credits have been extended. And that starts for all eligible installations occurring as of uh, this week. So starting uh, January 1st, 2023. Um, and, and so we're going to see we're going to see a lot of growth in the industry as a result of these different incentives. Um, and uh you know, there, the, there are strings attached to them. You have to have uh, qualifying equipment um, and the standards have, have gotten, you know, are pretty high. They're pretty rigorous standards. So you got to install something pretty decent in order to receive any of those, uh, the tax credits or, or, the, or the rebates that are coming down the line. So it's been, it's been my, Tim, real quick, it's been my yeah. experience when I talk to contractors. It's like, eh, it's not really something I need to know. It's the manufacturers need to know. Yep this you know when it affects me directly i'll know about it but uh, i'm not going to really worry how how is mitsubishi the you know working with its customers and consumers to kind of educate them on all of this yeah we well we we definitely have a hall, all hands on a de- on deck approach and uh you know the the marketing team has been working very hard to uh you know keep um uh, a, 
a page updated on our website and a lot of other manufacturers have this too. But um, if you go to MitsubishiComfort.com, um, you know, we have a page all about uh, the IRA legislation and the impact and the various different ways that it, that it comes into play. Pro- I, I don't, I, I don't think that contractors are wrong to kind of think, well, geez, I should wait and see what, mm-hmm. what comes along and see how it impacts me. And there are parts of it that are still sort of, you know, we'll see how they develop and, and where they come. It could be, a, you know, as much as another, you know, several months, if not a year before we truly see the impact. But as of today, here in January, the big news is really these 25C tax credits. This is something that anybody that installs HVAC equipment should be paying close attention to because it can give consumers, their clients, 30% off of a project, an eligible project, up to $2,000. And they can have that, that, they can receive that tax credit when they file tax credits for anything installed during the course of this calendar year. Um, and then in the following calendar year, they can do it again. So there's no there's no caps. It's just that you know you can receive that benefit for anything installed during that that calendar year, and that includes high performance uh, heat pumps. Um, you know that qualify for uh, CEEs highest tier, excluding um, their their advanced tier. And and we you know at that at our website we have a complete you know we're we're we. Of course, the whole industry is in the midst of changing over their ratings. That's a whole nother story. But like, you know, we're along with everybody else uploading our new ratings um, and we're generating lists of qualifying products. And so probably within the next few weeks, we'll have that ironed out and it'll be pretty stable. But like those products, if they're installed anytime starting, you know, last week after New Year's um, forward, they're eligible for 30% up to $2,000 off. Wow. Dana, is there a, a wide valley between looking at climate-friendly policy versus what some might consider less than ideal market realities? Is there a big wide gap there, or is it really a pretty thin line that you guys learn to massage at all times? Well, you know, I think I think people have the perception that some of these technologies are really exotic or uh, really expensive, and you know, I mean, like there's definitely some premium associated with having, you know, a, what we would have uh, as a hyperheat product or a cold climate product that can perform at super cold temperatures. Um, I'm in Maine. I, I've been heating with, uh, you know, cold climate heat pumps for a long time now. Um, and, you know, I really don't use any backup heat whatsoever. Um, it, they totally work. And it doesn't have to be some massive extensive system in order to accomplish that in most homes. Obviously, you have to size the equipment uh, to make sure it's appropriate. But, um, and you know, I, it, my house is relatively modest, but it's an old house from the 1820s. And I heat it with two one-ton wall mount units, and it's delightful. And so that, like in the grand scope of things, that's not really that expensive of, of, a, of a setup. And it's so it's plausible for people to, if not displace everything, certainly displace a substantial portion of their fossil fuel heating um, with pretty simple setups. Well, you know, Mitsubishi's been a leader in, in this technology for a while, and you're in place to, to make you know, great strides as we move towards this trend of electrification. I, I, do, do you see like companies like getting on this like bandwagon and you're just shake your head and you're like, whoa, <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I think, I think there's a lot, you know, um, the, the passage of the IRA bill has really made it, um, 
you know, apparent to a lot of the domestic manufacturers that they've got to figure out how to get cold climate products going. I think that yeah. they've been kind of dragging their feet a little bit on this. And the, the you know, of course, uh, the Department of Energy launched their uh, cold climate heat pump challenge. And so it, a, a handful of different manufacturers have jumped on board and they're trying to develop units that can perform, you know, well at cold temperatures um, and, you know, for, for a replacement of gas furnaces. Um, that's something that, that we've been doing for years, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. Uh, we're involved in that uh, pilot. We're going to have products that comply with that. Uh, we're we, we're going to be going into the testing phase with some of these uh, prototype equipment uh, in the spring. But frankly, today, you could get an air handler with one of our systems that uh, performs down to negative 13 degrees Fahrenheit and below. And we've been, they've been in play for, for a number of years. So um, that, that technology is here and, and others in the marketplace are, are uh, scrambling to develop um, equivalent systems. So the competition, the race is on. Um, and, you, you know, our objective, Mitsubishi's objective is really to remain uh, the innovator in the field and, and uh, have the top-notch uh, reliable equipment that is uh, great for consumers, but uh, really limits the, the callbacks that anybody yeah. would, would, would kind of like want to avoid. <laughs> Dana, I was going to ask about, you know, John mentioned electrification. Um, is that, is electrical service upgrades part of IRA? And as part of that, is it necessary um, to upgrade a home um, before getting heat pumps installed when it comes to the electrical? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, he, there are there are incentives, uh, both tax credits and potentially rebates for uh, electrical upgrades uh, within the twenty five C tax credits that are live right now. Uh, you can get thirty percent up to six hundred dollars for um, for change, improvements made for like you know upgrading the wiring or changing out the panel. Um, so you know that you sort of cap out when you hit two thousand dollars of improvement on on a panel, but that would be in addition to the thirty percent up to two thousand dollars that you could get for the for the heat pump. Those are kind of in separate categories um, of of the credit. Um, and so occasionally, I mean, it really depends. If somebody leaps into electrification and they're you know putting in a, they're getting an electric car and they're converting their gas stove over to electric and maybe their gas dryer over to electric. And they're also putting in heat pumps. You know, they may get into a circumstance with an older panel, like a hundred amp panel where it might be pretty packed. And so that may be a situation where they would have to consider upgrading to maybe like a 200 amp panel or something along those lines. But if they're really only making the changes in, in HVAC and they're going to heat their home completely with, with HVAC, it really yeah, uh, you know, it's sort of something they'd have to have assessed with their with their electrician, but not necessarily. There doesn't necessarily have to be a change in it in the equipment. Um, I think the like during peak events, you know, when it's really really crazy cold, you know, below five degrees or below zero degrees Fahrenheit, and you know the heat pumps are really working hard. You know, a, a two ton system, kind of like I have in my house. Um, you know, I'm using like during those peak events, I top out at around 3000 watts, three, 3,200 watts. And I know of, uh, you know, of like a three and a half ton system, almost twice as much, um, that tops out at around 6,000 watts during those peak events. So it's not, it's not an extraordinary amount of electricity relative to, you know, 
electric stoves or, you know, heat pump water heaters or spas or any of the rest of it. So like the burden by heat pumps, these high performance cold climate heat pumps is not so great that people have to make massive changes or that, you know, that the, the, the transformers on the street have to be upgraded or anything like that. Well, that was kind of a lead into my next question is Tim, you know, uh, you know what I love about social media is you go on and you see how far right your friends are and how far left your friends are or the people you call acquaintances on social media. <laughs> but lately, you know, with this heat pump and electrification, you see the right people's, well, you know, the infrastructure cannot possibly um, support this new movement of electrification. What is your opinion about that? Well, I, I mean, I, I got a couple of different angles on that. I mean, like one, of course, is that from the 1950s, you know, post-World War II to 2000, the number of the percentage, the, the growth in the, uh, the grid in the U.S. was about fivefold over that period of time. Um, we don't have to go through that level of growth to accomplish what we need to. We've done it in the past. We can do it again. Um, secondly, uh, when you look at uh, any one of the ISOs like ISO New England or ISO New York or, you know, that, that manage these grids. We hear about California and Texas all the time in these, you know, big events. But when I go to the dashboards that monitor the peak consumption, most of the time we're way below what the grid can handle. Mm -hmm. Um, and when they look at the forecasts for the installation of, of heat pumps, it's pretty manageable over that period of time, the kind of growth. I think ISO New England is expecting something like a, a growth in the in the estimated peak of 1.5% per year over yeah. the next decade. So, you know, really not that big a deal. And, and frankly, like in some of those areas like Texas, where they've had real peak problems, well, more than 50% of the housing heats with electric resistance. Mm -hmm. If you swapped out that electric resistance with heat pumps, particularly cold climate heat pumps that would be able to operate when it's down in single digits, they would really not have the same kind of problems or issues that they're having today. So in some ways, heat pumps are the solution uh, to those yeah. to those grid constraints. I'm also assuming, I don't know this for a fact, but the, the infrastructure bill would probably accommodate some of these things moving forward. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Lot, there's a lot of money poured at uh, upgrading the, the grid. So I, I, think, I think you're right. I'm curious why haven't um, more contractors, and you touched a little bit on this earlier, but why aren't more contractors feeling as if they're trained enough and or smart enough to use a system like this? Well, I, you know, I think, I think, you know, everybody, you know, gets into the habit of working with what they know and what, what they're used to using and, and dealing with. And I, I think that that kind of perpetuates and, and we've seen, you know, massive growth in the uptake and installation of heat pumps in Maine and, and across Northern New England. Um, we have just, just so many contractors that all they install is heat pumps. Like they don't do anything except heat pumps. That's that year round. Like right now they're out there installing heat pumps, like, you know, a dozen crews. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal thing, but it doesn't happen overnight. And it really has to be accompanied by consumer demand. You know, when the consumers are calling up on the phone and saying, hey, we want to have a Mitsubishi unit installed, um, it doesn't take long before the oil guys figure out, well, maybe I should, you know, think about suiting up a van specifically for that. And of course, you know, on the training front, um, you know, Mitsubishi has training centers all across the country 
um, and, and people that in classes that we're providing all the time and, and not just in person, but um, also uh, online. You know, if you go again to our MitsubishiComfort.com uh, website, there's a place to have contractors go and visit our portal and uh, you can watch all kinds of training. I even have a five and a half hour monologue on there if you don't get enough out of this, uh, this podcast. I've done some some stories and and worked with uh, some associations and 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 um, they work with their constituencies constituencies and their and their members. And one thing that comes up is you know you know heat pumps is the future. There's no doubt about that. But what do you say to people that say eliminating a fuel choice is not good for the economy? And not saying like eliminate for totally, but you know, there's this push toward okay by 2030, you know, we're eliminating natural gas in California. I don't, I don't know if that's the right date, 2035 or something. But yeah, I mean, like there there are some pretty aggressive dates uh, that are that are put out there, and of course, you know, we monitor and respond to those different things, and you know, we're getting questions from states or you know different agencies like you know our heat pumps are you guys going to be able to produce enough heat pumps to Mm -hmm. to meet the demand out there and it's a lot of demand i mean we've been growing as fast as we possibly can it's not easy to do it's not easy to to expand this production and maintain the kind of quality that everybody expects and uh you know, we, we, that is going to be our struggle is figuring out how to accomplish that and, and meet all the demand that's going to be out there. Um, I think that, you know, the gas infrastructure there, you know, none of this, again, none of this stuff happens overnight. Mm -hmm. And so as much as people are concerned that like, oh, you know, the demise of gas is coming right away. I, I think it's going to take a while before people, you know, actually transition their homes and businesses over. I think it's going to take, you know, the the incentives that are available through the IRA in the next 10 years to build that momentum and, and get that training for contractors. It's going to happen, but it's it's going to take a little while. And, and once we get 10 years down the road from now, it's going to be even more obvious than it is today. I kind of compare it to, Tim, you remember the first IBM back in the 50s or the 60s? Do you remember that? Well, I, I don't remember the first one because I wasn't quite born in the 50s. <laughs> You've seen the so. pictures, right? <laughs> I've seen the pictures. I, it was I like was a wall. Were... It was like a giant wall of, com- you know, this computer and it would, you could sign your name or something yeah. on the screen. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, you know, my old man was in the computer business. Uh, you know, he got, he got out of college with electrical engineering and he, he was, he was on computers back in the day when they had like little, the rollers to scoot underneath the chassis yeah. in order to yeah. change the vacuum tubes, it, you know? Yeah. So things happen. Yeah. So I kind of compare that to like, okay, this is going to be a gradual thing. So not overnight, we're not getting rid of any fossil fuel usage. So. Yeah. But you look at the transition in coal. I mean, like, you know, it's like people, people are hesitant about that too, but it's a question of economics. It's just way cheaper uh, and more reliable to put in wind turbines now for capacity on the grid than it is to continue to operate a coal-fired plant. And so, you know, it's it's these these large entities that have owned coal for forever are realizing that it's just no longer a good investment uh, to continue. And so that the coal plants continue to diminish um, and disappear and be replaced by other things. And the grid that's associated with those facilities is, you know, oftentimes being reused for you know, their direct connection to the grid to, you know, for renewables that are coming online. So, you know, I think, I think people are resourceful and I, and I think that 
the the grid operators out there are you know mindful of the future. They're keeping an eye on these things, and and they wake up every morning thinking about how they can make sure that people receive electricity and the benefits of and and you know do all the things that we're trying to accomplish. So it's it's a team game. You know, I think it's generational as well. Mm-hmm. I, I know, John, when you and I were growing up, I mean, earth friendly was a term, but you know, being kind to Mother Earth was you know, go plant a tree or something. Um, I think. John, your kids or my kids that are, you know, a few years older than yours, I, I, I think it's really something they've grown up with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, they're driving Teslas. They're driving electric cars. That's all they really kind of know. You know, the idea of coal for them is kind of strange. You know, they don't know what a telephone on the wall is. They're used to flip phones or, you know, they don't even like flip phones anymore. They, you know, so it's technology. It's kind of cool. Tim, I took an environmental class in college way back in the, you know, turn of the ice age. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know what? You know what the term paper was on, Tim? I'm, I do not. Acid know. rain. Acid rain. Acid. Remember that term? I do. <laughs> and, uh, I do. But I guess you won't be hearing about that with the, you know, the the advent and the the installation of these heat pumps. You won't hear that anymore. Actually, you don't really hear about it anymore. But. Dana, I'm curious. What do you like to do in your spare time? Do you have any spare time, or I don't. I you know, especially lately, I have definitely not had a whole lot of spare time. But uh, I I have a little a little garden. I like to garden. Um, I'm I'm uh, I'm a big fan of little sailboats. I um, you know I managed to make it out to Sebago, and I've got a I've got a 18 foot Hobie cat from uh, the 1980s okay. that wow. I keep together, and uh, you know try and fly a haul when I get a chance. It's kind of fun. So, uh, but, uh, you know, hiking and camping and, you know, Maine. Portland, Portland, Maine. I mean, it's things you do in Portland, Maine. <laughs> it's things you do in Portland, Maine. Try and sneak up to the ski lift once in a while. No, but we joked, you have some paintings behind you. We can see you on the screen here and you took a, um, a brush and you kind of yeah. faked, but do you paint? Or is, are those your paintings? Or? No, they're not my paintings, but okay. I do, I do like to, uh, give people a hard time, almost like, uh, you know, like I'm some sort of Bob Ross up here with my paintbrush. It's fun time. Yeah. I wanted to ask, going back to the whole heat pump concept, but um, as Katie and Mike, they're not on the on the call here. They're just silent. But um, they know. I, I used to work with a magazine called Net Zero Buildings, and it kind of folded. But the editor, Jim Crockett, you remember Jim Crockett, Tim? I remember Jim Crockett well. He was always adamant about district heating and cooling. And how could – why aren't – developers and builders concentrating on this more or are they well uh, district heating is a big thing in europe um Mm -hmm. you know and and especially like in scandinavia different different parts of the region and you know like part of that has been driven by you know industry that's surrounded by housing and just using some of that excess heat uh and and having it travel around and some of that that network and infrastructure has been around for decades. So I think that, you know, people have, have leveraged that, you know, and just continued to use it and use new heating plants that are, you know, uh, lower temperature heat pumps or, you know, geothermal or something like that. And that's just infrastructure that we really never have really been focused on in mm-hmm. the U S. And so I, I think that there's just people feel like they need to be more independent to their particular building than set yeah. up that kind of, yeah. district heating. I do know, I mean, like I know of some, you know, district heating projects where they're using, you know, wood chips and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, th- those are pretty, pretty rare cases. Yeah. Wood chips. 
That's your friend and the wood chipper there, Tim. Yep. It's <laughs> oh a lot of 18 trucks of 18 wheelers full of chips though, you know? That's a lot of chips. Dana, big picture, uh, crystal ball time. Uh, 2023, maybe 2024. What do you see on the horizon? As far as tech, as technology, industry, uh, you know, the R word that people have talked about with recession. We know that the first six months there could be challenges, but I'm, I'm curious from your viewpoint, from a strategic director position, you know, what what's crystal ball look like for you? We're, we're going to see, um, you know, in the course of this next decade, the, the incentives that are being put in place by RARA are going to have a dramatic uh, impact on demand by consumers. And that's, it's going to take time, but that's going to translate into, um, you know, a lot of c- contractors altering their business models to accommodate more heat pump installations and more training for, for contractors. There's no question that, that recessions impact, you know, all investment, whether that's homeowners in their own homes or elsewise. But I think that that is, not, even if we have a relatively modest period of recession, which I think it's going to be, you know, if anything, pretty, pretty darn mild, at least from, from where I'm standing. And you know, I don't think that that's going to impact HVAC nearly as much as it will some other sectors. So I think there's going to be a lot of growth there. In terms of the industry changes, though, this next step to A2L refrigerants that I, you know, previously referred to, that's going to occur 2024, you know, 2025 into 2026 for commercial applications. Um, residential is 2025, 2026 for commercial. But that's just the next step. We've got another refrigerant jump coming in 2029, and that's going to be substantially lower GWP, global warming potential refrigerants. And we might be getting into, um, you know, A3 refrigerants uh, like propane, which are going to really require, you know, additional safety measures and care and whatever um, in order to install those. And it may, you know, drive a transition for heat pumps towards air to water. Like it could be, a, you know, we could see a, a dramatic change in the in the way that we interact with heat pumps, just because you know we're we're trying to accommodate these restrictions on global warming uh, potential, um, and so it's it's going to be interesting. And I think that just my guidance, sort of broadly, is um, keep an open mind, be prepared for change, because uh, we're going to see a lot of change in the next ten years. So you talk about change, you talk about these new initiatives, you talk about the regulatory environment, you talk about heat pump technology, talk about the training that uh, Mitsubishi offers, how they can get more educated and, and more trained on, on certain things, certain products. Yeah, so at the uh, we we spend a, we have a fantastic training uh, department um, that uh, and and uh, team members all across the country uh, that that uh, teach contractors every single day at our training centers. Um, and we work with our, uh, our distribution partners, um, great companies that partner with us to uh, provide training as well. Um, really, if anybody's out there and they're like, I gotta, I want to figure this out. The first step is really to go to MitsubishiComfort.com and go to the contractor side and seek out the, the portal. Right on the portal, uh, you set up an account 
Um, it, you know, quick turnaround. It's an easy interface to use. There's a massive library of online training that you can watch that is engaging and covers topics, everything from basics to, you know, advanced controls to, um, you know, even customer service. Um, and and uh, so there's a, there's a huge library there. And there's also a calendar that has all of the training schedules uh, for all of our training centers across the entire country. So you can sign up right there on the, um, on that, uh, website for uh, training um, and and get started. And so if you're just starting to figure it out and you own a company, um, you know, check out those resources, consider taking a class yourself, and then you'll get a much better appreciation of, of uh, you know, which techs you want to send next uh, to get in the door and figure it out. Um, you know, part of Mitsubishi's secret sauce is our incredible support of contractors. We're totally focused on highest quality products and process and support. And so if, if you're looking for a product that, uh, you know, is going to be pretty well bulletproof for your clients and keep them comfortable year round, um, and provide a great value, um, that's, uh, check us out. Uh, no question. I was just going to say, I love a good secret sauce. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, Dana, thanks so much for uh, coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you and, um, Getting edumacated, right, Tim? Edumacated on heat pumps. Yeah. No, it's been it's been fun and um, some really good information here. So we um, look forward to seeing the team at uh, AHR in a week or so. Yeah, no, I can't wait. You'll see me, you know, walking around with big wide eyes. I just can't wait to check it all out. No <laughs> Will doubt. you be in the booth or will you just be kind of scouting it out? I'll be in the booth. I'll be talking to people everywhere I go. I just uh, can't help it. It's like heat pumps all the time. Like my family's like, oh my gosh, he's talking about heat pumps again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for jumping on. We appreciate it. Yeah, super. Thanks, thank Dana. you for having me on. Thanks, John. Bye, Tim.